Section 1 of On the Popular Judgment That May Be Right in Theory But Does Not Hold in the Praxis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On the Popular Judgment That May Be Right in Theory But Does Not Hold Good in the Praxis by Immanuel Kant. Section 1. Of the relation which the theory bears to the praxis in moral in general. In answer to a few objections started by Professor Garfe. Footnote. Confer essays on different subjects, moral and literary, by Professor Garfe. Volume 1. Pages 111 to 116. I name the disputing of my position's objections of this worthy man's to that in which he, I hope, wishes to agree with me, not attacks, which as positive assertions would provoke to a defense, for which it is neither the place here, nor have I the inclination. End footnote. Before I come to the proper point of dispute, concerning what may be valid in the use of the same conception for the theory merely, or for the praxis, I must compare my theory, as I have represented it elsewhere, with the representation which Mr. Garfe gives of it, in order previously to see whether we understand one another. Heading A. By way of introduction, I explained moral as a science, which teaches not how we shall become happy, but how we shall become worthy of felicity. Footnote. The worthiness of being happy is that quality of a person resting upon the proper will of the subject in conformity to which a universally legislative reason, for nature as well as for the free will, would harmonize with all the ends of this person. It is therefore totally different from the address in procuring happiness to one's self. For he is not worthy of this even, and of the talent which nature has lent him for that purpose, when he has a will that does not accord with what only is suitable to a universal legislation, and cannot be comprehended therein, that is, which is repugnant to morality. End footnote. At the same time, I did not neglect to observe that it thereby was not required of man that, when the observance of duty was concerned, he should renounce his natural end, felicity. For he cannot do that, no more than any finite rational being in general. But he must, when the commandment of duty is in question, totally abstract from the consideration of felicity. He must by no means make it the condition of the observance of the law prescribed to him by reason. Nay, as much as it is possible for him even to endeavor to become conscious to himself that no springs derived from that source shall imperceptibly mix themselves with the determination of duty, which is effectuated by representing duty combined rather with sacrifices, which its observance, virtue, costs, than with the advantages it yields us, in order to represent to ourselves the commandment of duty in its whole consequence or importance, requiring unconditional obedience, enough for itself 
and standing in need of no other influence whatever. Subheading A. Mr. Garfe expresses this my position thus. That I maintained that observance of the moral law is, entirely without consideration of felicity, the only scope of man, that it must be considered as the sole end of the Creator. Paren. According to my theory, neither the morality of man of itself, nor felicity of itself only, but the highest good possible in the world, which consists of the union and harmony of both, is the only end of the Creator. End paren. Heading B. I observed farther that this conception of duty has no occasion to bottom upon any particular end, but rather brings about another end for the will of man, namely to contribute to the utmost to the highest good possible in the world, universal felicity conjoined with the purest morality, and that felicity conformable to this morality in the universe, which, as it is indeed in our power on one side, but not on both sides taken together, extorts from reason, in a practical view, the belief in a moral sovereign of the world, and in a future life. Not as if the universal conception of duty should receive support and stability, but on the presupposition of both, that is, a sure ground, and the requisite strength of a spring, but that it may receive an object, but in that ideal of pure reason. Footnote. The need or necessity of supposing a highest good possible by our cooperation in the world, as the scope or final end of things, is not a need for want of moral springs, but in external relations, in which only, conformable to these springs, an object can be produced as end in itself, as moral scope. For no will can be without all end, though, when legal necessitation of actions merely is concerned, it must be abstracted from, and the law only constitutes the determinative of the will. But every end is not moral, for example, that of proper felicity is not. But this must be disinterested, and the need of a scope given by pure reason comprehending the whole of all ends under one principle, a world is the highest good possible, by a cooperation, is a need of the disinterested wills extending itself beyond the observation of the formal laws to the production of an object, the chief good. This is a determination of will of a peculiar sort, namely by the idea of the whole of all ends, where this is laid as a foundation to it, that when we stand in certain moral relations to things in the world, we must everywhere obey the moral law. And more than that, the duty still servines to cause with all our might that such a relation, a world suitable to the moral chief ends, may exist. In this, man cogitates himself according to the analogy with the deity, which, though subjective, stands in need of no external thing. However, it cannot be thought that he should shut himself up within himself, but is destined to produce the chief good without himself, even by the consciousness of his all-sufficiency, which necessity, 
which in men is duty, in the supreme being, cannot be represented by us, but as a moral need. With man, therefore, the spring that lies in the idea of the highest good possible in the world by his cooperation is not the proper felicity thereby intended, but only this idea as end in itself, consequently its observance as duty. For it contains not a prospect of happiness absolutely, but a proportion between it and the worthiness of the subject, whatever it be but a determination of the will, which limits itself in its design to belong to such a whole, to this condition, is not interested. End footnote. For duty in itself is nothing but limitation of the will to the condition of a universal legislation possible by an assumed maxim, let the object or the end of the will be what it pleases consequently, even felicity, but from which, and from every end that one may have, it is hereby totally abstracted. In the question concerning the principle of moral, the doctrine of the chief good, as ultimate end of a will determined by it and suitable to its laws, may then, as episodical, be passed over in silence, as it will appear in the sequel that, where the proper point of dispute is concerned, no regard whatever is paid to it, but merely to the universal moral. Subheading B. Mr. Garfay reduces these positions to the following expressions, that the virtuous neither can nor dares lose sight of that point of view, proper felicity, because otherwise he would totally lose the transition to the invisible world, that to the conviction of the existence of God and of immortality, which, however, according to this theory, is absolutely necessary to give the system support and stability. And concludes, in order to comprehend in a small space the sum of the assertions ascribed to me, the virtuous, in consequence of those principles, aspires incessantly to be worthy of felicity, but, in so far as he is really virtuous, never to be happy. The expression in so far occasions here an ambiguity, which must first be removed. It may mean, in the act, in which he, as virtuous, subjects himself to his duty, and in that case this position harmonizes completely with my theory. Or, when he is but virtuous in general, and even where duty is not concerned and impugned, the virtuous shall pay no regard at all to felicity, and that contradicts my assertions entirely. End paren. These objections, therefore, are nothing but misunderstandings, for I do not choose to hold them misinterpretations, whose possibility would seem very strange did not the human propensity to follow the train of thought to which it is once accustomed in even the judgment of others' thoughts, and thus to transfer that to this, sufficiently explain such a phenomenon. A dogmatical assertion of the opposite follows this polemical treatment of the above moral principle. Mr. Garfay concludes analytically thus, In the order of conceptions must precede the perception and distinguishing of states, whereby the preference is given to the one over the other, to the choice of one of them, and thus to the previous determination 
of a certain end. But a state which a being endued with the consciousness of himself and of his state, when the state is present and perceived by him, prefers to other modes of being, is a good state. And a series of such good states is the most general conception which the word felicity expresses. Again, a law presupposes motives, but motives presuppose a previously perceived difference of a worse state from a better. This difference perceived is the element of the conception of felicity, etc. Again, from felicity, in the most general sense of the word, spring the motives to every pursuit, therefore to the observance of the moral law. I must first know in general that something is good, before I can inquire whether the observance of the moral duties belongs to the rubric of the good. Man must have a spring that puts him in motion before an aim can be set up to him to which this motion shall be directed. Footnote. That is exactly what I insist on. The spring which man can previously have before an aim end is set up to him can evidently be nothing but the law itself, by the reverence which it, undetermined, what ends one may have and may attain by their observance, inspires. For the law, in regard of the formal of the arbitrament, is indeed the only one that remains when we have abstracted from the matter of the arbitrament, the aim as Mr. Garfe names it. End footnote. This argument is nothing more than a play with the ambiguity of the word the good, as this is either in itself and unconditionally good, in contradiction to that bad in itself, or never but good in a conditional manner, compared with the better or with the worse as the state of the choice of the former can be but a comparatively better state, but in itself may be bad. The maxim of an unconditional observance of a categorically commanding law of the free arbitrament, that is, duty, having no regard at all to ends as a foundation, is, essentially, that is, according to the species, different from the maxim to observe that end, which is named felicity in general, pointed out to us by nature itself as a motive to a certain mode of action. For the first is good in itself, but the second by no means. It may, in the event of the collision with duty, be very bad. Whereas, when a certain end is founded upon, consequently no law commands unconditionally, but only on the condition of this end, thus two opposite actions may be both good in a conditional manner, only one better than the other, which latter would therefore be named comparatively bad, for they are not different from one another according to the sort, but merely according to the degree. And of this nature are all actions whose motive is not the unconditional law of reason, duty, but an end arbitrarily laid by us as a foundation for this belongs to the sum of all ends, whose attainment is denominated felicity. And one action may contribute more, another less, to my felicity, 
consequently, be better or worse than the other. But the preferring of the one state of the determination of the will to the other is an act of liberty merely, res mere facultatis, as the jurists say, in which it is not at all taken into consideration whether this, determination of the will, be good or bad in itself. Therefore it is, in respect of both, equipollent. A state of being in connection with a certain given end, which I prefer to every other of the same sort, is a comparatively better state in the field of felicity, which can be acknowledged as good by reason, but in a conditional manner, so far as one is worthy of it. But that state, in which, in case of the collision of any of my ends with the moral law of duty, I am conscious to myself to prefer this, is not only a better state, but that state only good in itself, a good from a quite other field, where we have no regard at all to ends, which may present themselves to us, consequently to their sum, felicity, and where, not the matter of the arbitrament, an object upon which it bottoms, but the mere form of the universal legality of its maxim constitutes its determinative. Therefore it cannot by any means be said that I can reckon every state which I prefer to every other mode of being to felicity. For I must first be certain that I do not act contrary to my duty, as I am but then allowed to look out for felicity, and to see how much of it I can unite with that my morally, not physically, good state. Footnote. Felicity comprises all, but nothing more than, that with which nature can supply us. But virtue, that which nobody but man himself can give himself or can take. Did one on the contrary say that by deviation from virtue man may incur at least reproaches and pure moral self-censure, therefore discontentment, consequently may make himself unhappy, that may perhaps be granted. But the virtuous only, or he who is on the way to become so, is capable of the pure moral discontentment, not from the consequences of the action pernicious to him, but from its illegality itself. Therefore, this discontentment is not the cause, but only the effect of his being virtuous. And the motive for being virtuous could not be taken from this misfortune, if one chooses so to name the pain occasioned by a misdeed. End footnote. The will must certainly have motives, but these are not certain designed objects preferred to the physical feeling, as ends, but nothing but the unconditional law itself, for which reason the receptibility of the will to find itself under that law, as an unconditioned necessitation, is termed moral feeling which is therefore not the cause, but the effect of the determination of the will, of which we would not have the smallest perception in us if that necessitation in us did not precede. Hence the old song, that this feeling, consequently a pleasure, 
which we make our end, constitutes the first cause of the determination of the will. Of course, felicity, to which that pleasure belongs as element, the ground of all objective necessity of acting, therefore of all obligation, pertains to the reasoning toyings. When, in alleging a cause to a certain effect, one cannot cease inquiring, thus at last one makes the effect the cause of itself. At present I come to the point which properly occupies us here, namely, to try by examples and to prove the interest of the theory and of the practice opinionatively jarring in philosophy. Mr. Garfe, in his above-mentioned essay, gives the best testimony of this. First, says he, speaking of the distinction which I find between a doctrine, how we shall become happy, and that, how we shall become worthy of felicity, I, for my part, acknowledge that I perfectly comprehend this partition of ideas in my head, but that I do not find this partition of the wishes and aspirations in my heart, that it is even incomprehensible to me how any one person can be conscious to himself of having purely separated his desire for felicity itself, and therefore discharged his duty quite disinterestedly. I first reply to the latter, namely, I willingly grant that no man can with certainty be conscious to himself of having discharged his duty quite disinterestedly, for that belongs to internal experience, and to this consciousness of the state of his mind would belong a thoroughly clear representation of all the collateral representations and considerations associating themselves with the conception of duty, by imagination, a suetude, and inclination, which cannot be required in any case. The non-existence of something cannot be an object of experience. Consequently, an advantage, thought in secret, cannot. But man is conscious to himself with the greatest distinctness that he ought to discharge his duty quite disinterestedly, and must totally separate his desire for felicity from the conception of duty in order to have it quite pure. Or, did he believe not to be conscious of this, it can be required of him that he be so, as far as it is in his power, because just in this purity is to be met with the real value of morality, and he must therefore be able to do so. Perhaps no man may have ever quite disinterestedly discharged, without a mixture of other springs, his duty, acknowledged and even honored by him. Perhaps no one, notwithstanding the greatest efforts, will ever reach so far. But, as much as he can perceive in himself by the most careful self-examination, to be conscious to himself, not only of no such cooperating motives, but rather of self-denial with regard to many things opposing the idea of duty, consequently of the maxim, to aspire to that purity, that he is able to do so, and that is enough for the observance of his duty. Whereas, to adopt as a maxim the favoring of the influence of such motives, under the pretext 
that human nature does not allow such a purity, which, however, he cannot maintain with certitude, is the death of all morality. As to the laconic confection of Mr. Garfay, to wit, not to find in his heart that partition, more properly separation, I make no hesitation to contradict him directly in his self-accusation, and to protect his heart against his head. He, honest man, always found it actually in his heart, in the determination of his will. But they would only not accord, for the behoof of speculation, and for the comprehending of what is incomprehensible, inexplicable, namely, the possibility of categorical imperatives, such as those of duty are, in his head, with the common principles of psychological explications, which collectively bottom upon the mechanism of the necessity of nature. Footnote. Professor Garfay, in his observations on Cicero on Duties, page 69, 1783 edition, makes this remarkable confession, which is at the same time worthy of his ingenuity. Liberty, according to my most intimate conviction, will always remain inextricable, and will never be explained. A proof of actuality cannot absolutely be met with, either in an immediate or mediate experience, and one cannot assume it without all proof, as a proof of it cannot be given from theoretical grounds merely, for these must be sought in experience, therefore from practical positions of reason merely, but not from technically practical ones, for these would require grounds of experience, consequently, but from morally practical positions, it is surprising that Professor Garvey had not recourse to the conception of liberty, in order to save the possibility, at least, of such imperatives. End footnote. But when Mr. Garvey at last says, such fine distinctions become obscure in reflecting on particular objects, but they are lost entirely when acting is in question, when they are to be applied to appetites and views, the simpler and quicker the step is by which we pass from the considerations of the motives to real action, and the more divested of clear representations, the less it is possible to cognize precisely and certainly the determinate weight which every motive has added to direct the step so and not otherwise, I must be allowed to contradict him flatly, and with an audible voice. The conception of duty, in its whole purity, is not only beyond all comparison simpler, more perspicuous, more conceivable, to everybody for practical use, and more natural, than any motive taken from felicity, or mingled with it, and having regard to it, which always requires great art and reflection, but in the judgment of even the most common human reason, when it is but brought to this, and with separation from, nay, even in opposition to these, to the will of man far more energetical, penetrating, and promises more success, than all the motives borrowed from the latter interested principle. 
Let us, for example, put the case that a certain person has in his hands another's property, which was entrusted to him, depositum, whose proprietor is dead, and that his heirs neither know nor can ever hear of that property. Let this case be propounded even to a child of eight or nine years old, and at the same time that this detainer of this deposit is without his fault, exactly at this instant totally ruined in his circumstances, and sees around him a wife and a numerous family of helpless children, melancholy and dejected through want, from which distressing situation he would be immediately relieved, should he appropriate that deposit to himself. Let him at the same time be humane and beneficent, but that air opulent and uncharitable, and in the highest degree luxurious and prodigal, so that this addition to his fortune would be like throwing a drop of water into the ocean. And were it now asked whether the detainer under these circumstances can be allowed to apply this deposit to his own use, the answer would certainly be no, and instead of all grounds, nothing but that it is wrong, that is, repugnant to duty. Nothing is clearer than this, and indeed, not that the detainer promotes his own felicity by giving up the deposit. For if he expected the fixing of his resolution from the view to felicity, he might reason thus. If I return this deposit to its proper owner without it being demanded, I shall in all probability be rewarded for my honesty, or, should I not be rewarded, I shall acquire a good reputation, which may be highly advantageous to me. But all this is very uncertain. On the other hand, many doubts occur. If I should keep the deposit in order to relieve my distresses at once, I would, should I make a speedy use of it, incur suspicion. And everybody would inquire how I came to better my fortune so suddenly. But, were I to proceed in this slowly, the misery would increase to so high a degree that it would not be possible afterwards to remedy it. The will, therefore, according to the maxim of felicity, hesitates between its springs what it shall conclude, for it looks to the consequence, and that is very uncertain. It requires a good understanding to disentangle oneself from the crowd of arguments and counter-arguments, and not to deceive oneself in the summing up. Whereas, when one questions oneself, what is duty here, one is at no loss at all what answer to give, but is immediately certain what ought to be done. Nay, if the conception of duty has any weight with us, we even feel an aversion to enter but on the calculation of advantages which might arise to us from the transgression of our duty, as if we still had the choice here. It therefore contradicts, even proper experience, that these distinctions, which, as shown above, are not so fine as Mr. Garvey fancies, but are written in the most legible characters in the soul of man, are, as he expresses himself, totally lost when acting is in question. It does not indeed contradict that experience which exhibits the history of the maxims 
drawn from the one or from the other principle, for there it evinces, unfortunately, that they for the most part flow from the latter, self-interest. But the experience, which can be but internal, that no idea elevates the human mind more, and animates it to ecstasy even, than that of a pure moral sentiment, revering duty above all, struggling with the innumerable evils of life, and even with its seducing allurements, and yet overcoming them, as it is supposed with reason that man is able to do it. That man is conscious to himself that he can do this, because he ought to do it, opens in him a depth of godlike predispositions which makes him feel, in a manner, a solemn shudder, and reflect on the grandeur and sublimity of his real destination. And were he frequently made attentive and accustomed to disburden virtue totally of all the riches and spoil of the advantages which it can make from the observance of duty, and to represent it to himself in its whole purity, were it a principle in the private as well as in the public instruction, to make constant use of it, a method of inculcating duties which has almost always been neglected, the morality of men would soon be on a better footing. That the experience of history has not yet had the good consequence which moralists wish to evince, is the fault of the false presupposition that the spring derived from the idea of duty in itself is far too fine for the common conception, whereas the coarser spring taken from certain advantages to be expected in this world, nay, even in a future, from the observance of the law, without attending to it as a spring, would act more forcibly on the mind, and that to give the aspiring to felicity the preference to that which reason makes the highest condition, namely the worthiness of being happy, has hitherto been made the principle of education and of the propounding from the pulpit. For precepts, how one may make himself happy, or at least avoid his disadvantage, are no commandments. They bind nobody absolutely, and he, after he has been warned, may choose what pleases, when he is content with suffering, whatever may happen to him. He has then no reason to consider the evils which may arise to him from the neglect of the advice given him as punishments, for these reach only the free but the wrongful will, but nature and inclination cannot give laws to liberty. Quite differently circumstanced is the idea of duty whose transgression, without having regard to the disadvantages arising to men therefrom, acts immediately on the mind and renders them in their own eyes culpable and punishable. Here is now a clear proof that in moral all that is right in theory must be valid for the praxis too, in the quality of a man, as a being subjected to certain duties by his own reason, every one is a man of business, and as he, as a man, never grows too tall for the school of wisdom, he cannot, as opinionatively better versed by experience in what a man is, 
and what can be required of him, with arrogant contempt send back to the school the adherers to the theory. For all this experience does not help him to avoid the precept of theory, but only to teach how it, when it is adopted as a principle, may be better and more generally put in execution, but which pragmatical address is not the subject of the present discussion. End section 1 of the relation which the theory bears to the praxis in moral in general. From On the Popular Judgment That May Be Right in Theory But Does Not Hold Good in the Praxis by Immanuel Kant. This recording is in the public domain.